Life is made up of many gorgeous moments. Cherish them all, big and small, with Blue Nile. Whether it's for yourself or a loved one, Blue Nile's unrivaled selection of expertly crafted fine jewelry and statement pieces help make all your moments sparkle. Blue Nile's experts are on hand to guide you, and their diamond guarantee ensures you get the highest quality at the best price. Celebrate a life well lived in the most radiant way and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist. To find out if it's right for you. You're asking a man who is a sadistic psychopath to ease your suffering. Unfortunately, he delights in your misery. The act of killing is enormously exciting, sexually arousing at the same time. Hello, my name is Simon Toyne and I kill people for a living. Uh, But don't worry, I'm not a psychopath. I'm actually just a fairly harmless crime writer. And my murderous thoughts only go as far as the pages of my books and the occasional podcast. I'm also the presenter of the CBS reality television series Written in Blood. And this is the companion podcast. Here you'll get additional content, behind the scenes insights and much more detail about the cases we feature and the authors I meet. This is the final podcast in this series, and hopefully by now you've watched the TV episode, and if not, I suggest you tune into that first, and then have a listen to this podcast. That way, you'll avoid any spoilers and find out about the story in the same way that I did. In this episode, I'm joined by crime writer and also friend of mine on the crime writery circuit, Howard Linsky. Howard is a brilliant talent, one of those people who was born to write books. As well as crime fiction, he's also written a factually-based novel set in World War II, and in this episode we also deal with a book based partly on real life. And in this case, it's a person. And to do that, we step back in time to 1960s Manchester and the infamous Moores murders committed by Myra Hindley and Ian Brady. When Howard told me we'd be exploring this case, my initial thought was that I already knew quite a lot about it. I mean, it's one of those infamous cases where... Almost everyone in the UK will know something of the story of how these two abducted and then killed children uh, and buried them on the remote Saddleworth Moor. And of course, pretty much everyone recognises the names of Ian Brady and Myra Hindley because they have passed into folklore as those rare, real-life monsters that come along once in a generation. But right from the outset, it became clear to me that there was plenty about this case I didn't know. Not least, I would soon discover that even though they're known as the Moor's murderers, Only four of their victims were buried on Saddleworth Moor, 
And their final murder, the one that would lead to their capture and incarceration, was of a young man called Edward Evans, who Brady murdered in the living room of his own house. But before we dive deeper into this infamous case, let's first find out a little bit more about Howard and his career. Um, I think I've always wanted to be a writer, looking back, ever since as far as I can recall. I wrote for years different things, like football fanzines, and I became a journalist, I wrote for magazines and newspapers. It does feel quite rebellious being an author because you don't have the set hours. You don't have to wear a suit and a tie like I had to for years. Um, you feel a little bit in a way like you're playing truant, uh, like you're playing truant from life because you're escaping into your own head. I used to often have to take holidays to write, so if I was working on something I'd take a week off and just that would be what I'd do in my holiday as part of it. Now I do that every day, so in a way it doesn't feel like work. It feels like I'm kind of either on holiday, playing truant or semi-retired, although it's a lot more hard work than I in reality. I guess I have an interest in true crime. I'm always fascinated about the people behind the story, not just their age and what they did and the sentence they got. Who are they? Where do they come from? What was their background? And I guess that's the fictitious bit that you probe into. You know, you're never going to learn that from a newspaper report. Um, I do do a little bit of planning in that I do have to have an ending in mind with a book, otherwise I'd be too terrified to start it. I don't know how authors do that, where they start a book and they go, I've got no idea how this is going to end, that would terrify me. It's the middle bit that I haven't worked out. I have a starting point, whether that's a person who's disappeared or a body is found. I have an ending so I kind of know where hearts are all going to be resolved. The middle 80,000 words or so is the tricky bit, when you have to take your reader on a journey from the beginning of the book to the end of the book and keep them, keep them interested, keep them turning the pages. Um, and that's the bit that I work out as I go along. I think if you spend a year working on something with 100 or 120,000 words, inevitably there are going to be times when you doubt it and you doubt yourself, but you keep pushing on. And so far the books have been very well received, so I must be doing something right, I guess. Howard is from the northeast of England and his recent series of books is also based there. Now, I spoke before on an earlier podcast about the importance of believability in crime fiction, including in the locations, and writing about a place you're familiar with is obviously the easiest way to do that because it saves on hours and hours of research. Trust me, I know because the first three books of mine were all set up in made-up places and I spent so many hours researching things to get them right. Basing a story on real-life events and people also gives a book a solid foundation of fact to build a fiction upon. Though Howard told me that he didn't initially set off writing about the Moore's murders for his book The Search, which is the one we're talking about. It was only about midway through writing it that he started to realise that his protagonist shared a lot of similarities with Ian Brady. And from that point on, the real case and his fictional story grew closer and closer. So most of my books, well, most of the settings of my books are in either Newcastle or Durham City or County Durham, the surrounding area. Um, it's an area I grew up in. Detective Sergeant Ian Bradshaw is the main character. He works alongside two investigative journalists, Tom Carney and Helen Norton, who help him with his crimes. Um, DS Bradshaw is a complicated soul. Uh, he's an intelligent fella with academic qualifications that his superiors distrust. This is set in the, the mid-90s, where they think he's a bit of a brain box, or they call him Sherlock and that kind of thing. Um, but he lacks confidence because he's had one or two mess-ups in his career, hasn't gone according to plan. He is a very much a peaks and troughs kind of guy. He'll solve something quite um, 
detailed and extensive and get a pat on the back for it and then things go a bit wrong for him and he's back down again. He doesn't really fit in. He's not your typical detective or your typical copper. So he's always a bit of an outsider and sometimes ends up working either on his own or with the journalists that I write about too. The Search was a story about a missing girl who disappears during the heat wave in 1976 and that bit was fictional. The idea that 20 years on her village is traumatised by her disappearance was also fiction based on, I guess, um, factual events. The real-life suspected killer in the novel, was a real-life, he's based a little bit on the real-life killer of Ian Brady. Um, I didn't initially set out to do it that way. What I was really trying to do was fashion a fictional character who may or may not be responsible for a child's death and delights in messing the authorities and the police around. Doesn't want to reveal the truth because it's a card that he wants to hold to the very end because it's important. And generally delights in the mischief that he causes. And of course, the more I research that kind of character, the more I research their psychopathy, their narcissism, their sadism, the more I was remind, reminded of Ian Brady and the more he started to resemble him. The Moore's murders are generally considered to be amongst the very worst crimes ever carried out in this country. And the reasons for this are manifold, but centre around a few key elements. Firstly, it was the fact that the victims were mostly children, although this sadly is not completely unusual. Uh, the second factor is that the crimes were planned, meaning that the killers deliberately preyed on the young and innocent. And the third, and probably the biggest reason, I think, is that these killings were carried out not by one person, but by a couple. And not just a couple, but a man and a woman. And it was the woman, Myra Hindley, who was used to lure the victims off the streets and into a car that would drive them out of Manchester and onto the moors to be murdered. And I think it's that fact, that the fact that a woman used her femininity and her lack of threat, I suppose, as a deliberate lure to these innocent children that really horrified people. The incredible thing about Ian Brady and Myra Hindley was the enormity of their crimes and the period in which they broke. This was the 60s. This was when the world was very young and still raw after the Second World War. People were fed up with killing and nobody believed that a woman would go out and abduct children to satisfy the needs of a man who wanted to kill. So how does someone exert such control over another person to the extent that they can get them to assist in such a terrible thing as murdering not one but four children? I mean, there have certainly been other examples of individuals who've had uh, a similar uncanny hold over others. Charles Manson, for example, did exactly the same. Um, he had a similar kind of power over his family, the Manson family. And there have been many examples of religious cult leaders who have incited their followers to do everything from committing murder to mass suicide. So was Brady one of these, one of these twisted, charismatic demagogue figures? Or was Myra Hindley every bit as evil as Brady was? and their meeting just a very tragic and unhappy coincidence. Myra fulfilled the needs of Ian Brady. Brady didn't have the confidence, he didn't have the ability to be able to talk to children 
in the way that uh, Myra did or a woman would. He didn't have that affinity with, with children. And so he needed someone to go and acquire his victims for him. And Myra was a, was, was a, a willing participant in that. In the years since uh, Hindley and Brady were caught and imprisoned, this story of the unnatural anti-maternal murderous woman has been one of the foremost narratives woven around uh, the case of the Moors murderers. But I discovered during the making of this programme that all of the abductions and killings were actually planned and controlled by Ian Brady. It was he who instigated everything. And Myra Hindley, although undoubtedly aware of what she was doing and eminently culpable in these crimes... It was her who was his puppet. What I learned from Howard during the making of this episode made me think that perhaps Brady was a man who always had this evil inside him. He was clearly a very dangerous man with dark, sadistic tendencies. And you kind of, you know, you find them in literature a lot, these kind of super clever, kind of arch-villain type people, but you kind of don't find them in real life that often but then occasionally something comes up you know where obviously he was a sort of Svengali figure you know he met her and you know you can't imagine that if she'd never met him she would have gone on and done all the things she did she would have just probably there was obviously something inside her that was able to be exploited by him and she must have gone along with it but I think had he not come along there's a very strong case that she would have had a normal life no different to anybody else raised in this area but there was something within her that he was able to tap into. Yes, I think there has to be something in terms of her psychopathology that would fit with his, even if he was primarily the dominant figure in that relationship and she was doing things. So he... he... Do you love anime, gaming, movies, and discovering how your favourite pop culture affects everything you do? Then join us on Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. Every week you can listen in while we break down the latest pop culture news and dish on what new releases we can't get enough of. Whether you love movies. I'm going to tell you all about the uh, hopeful 4K re-release of Tron Legacy that happens. <laughs> <laughs> I'm right there with you. Or music. The music in this show yeah. is absolutely incredible. Or anime. And under this mask is another mask. (laughs) You can discover your new favorites right here on The Anime Effect. Listen every Friday wherever you get your podcasts and watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or on the Crunchyroll YouTube channel. Hey everyone. I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago... If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash boast. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Quite likely did have an enormous degree of control over her. In a sense, his, um, his kind of innovation, if you want to call it such, was to sort of see, to utilise that and exploit that um, naivety, yeah. I suppose. And as a writer, you kind of have to think your way into his mind as well as the victims and um, and also the you know the victims' family. Yeah, and disturbingly you do. I mean, you end up trying to see things with his twisted worldview, and you have to. And I've done it before with other crime novels, and I've written a historical novel that featured a, a prominent Nazi, and I have to get inside his head. And it's a disturbing place to be. Spending but at least your days you can, in the head of a Nazi. Yes, it's not the best place to be. You know. No. But um, that's but, what you have to do Brady as a writer. But Brady was obsessed with uh, Nazis. Oddly and, enough, he uh, was, yeah. And to the atrocities and like that. The, the whole Nazi paraphernalia, he was fascinated by the works of the Marquis de Sade, he was intrigued by, because as well as being a serial killer and a psychopath, he was also a sadist, um, in, li- in a literal sense. He was into sadism physically and mentally inflicting pain on people. That was, he considered that the world's finest pleasure, sadism. And he thought the world... His worldview was he thought... Pleasure was all that mattered. But to him, pleasure was pain and vice versa. But part of Brady's sadism was clearly about manipulating others, of feeling the power of being able to involve others in his crimes. He seemed to get off on it. Committing these murders for him wasn't enough. He obviously needed accomplices, witnesses maybe even to his acts. And it started with Myra Hindley. But then when her involvement clearly became not enough for him, he tried to involve someone else, a man called David Smith. Brady made him witness the murder of Edward Evans, and it was ultimately David Smith who would then go on to notify the police and bring an end to the criminal careers of both Brady and Hindley. So this is a holding cell, this is where, so after they've been arrested, or after Brady's been arrested for the murder, Suspected murder. This is where he would have resigned for a while. Yeah. So Brady's in a cell, not dissimilar to this. Yeah, at that? this point, well, Brady's sticking to the story that what happened was a quarrel, um, a row, and that um, he did kill uh, the fifth victim, but it was purely a one-off. He's not, he's not trying to make out that there's... He's trying to make out there's nothing else going on. And he's also in the early stages of trying to plant some idea in the, uh, in the police... Uh, head that David Smith is involved in it as well, and denying that he has anything to do with anything else. But of course, when when they uncover the physically evidence in the suitcase, when they see the terrible photographs of Leslie Ann Downing, when they listen to the awful recording of her pleading for her life with Brady's voice in the background, then they know that he was involved in that as well. So then they so then they presume they come back and they they, they present that evidence to him and see yeah. what he has to say. So yeah. and what happens then? Does he just still maintain that it's not him? And yeah, I mean he um, he at one point he tried to pin the entire thing on Smith again. So in the court case, he claimed that David Smith brought Leslie Ann Downey to the house, that he took the photographs and took her away again. 
and she was never seen again. So that's one of the reasons why David Smith's life was so turbulent, because there was always a veneer of accusation directed against him. So there's a shadow over him, and shadow lots of people over probably him. heard that and thought, well, yeah, he's yeah. got to be, there's no smoke without fire. Exactly, and also, the, how could he not have known that there was this monster uh, that he was friends with? But of course he didn't, you know, so... So we've driven up to Saddleworth Moor now, where this you know this is the place that's synonymous with Hindley um, and Brady. So what do you think? So having now, you know, we've kind of gone right from the very beginning, from when the first uh, murder came on the um, police radar. Have you felt about the whole journey? I still, I still have an unchanging view that I can't quite believe anybody could do it. Even now, even as we're standing here, even though I've been hearing about it for years and we've got into the real nitty-gritty of the story and the case, it is still almost impossible to imagine two people doing something this inhuman. And I think that's why the story stays with us and why it resonates through the ages. Do you think, so do you think this particular, you know, you got, in a sense, you kind of came to it sort of, I know, slide... Yeah, subconsciously almost, yeah. yeah. It was only that you suddenly started realising there was connections between the character you were writing and researching and Brady. And so you kind of came into it sort of sideways rather than head on. That's right, yeah, it was almost by accident. Um, And then, you know, I ended up doing the research and getting into the detail and... uh, and it just, it still has the capacity to shock, really. Even after a very long time, we, sh- we should be, perhaps we shouldn't be immune to it. Perhaps that's the wrong view, but it's still incredible. When you read the detail and you find out what happened, what they did, what they claimed, how they reacted, how they tried to blame others and, and deny it all and played games with the authorities and the police for so long, it still has the capacity to shock. Whatever motivated them, Examining their case, one of the most notorious in the history of British crime, felt like a fitting way to end this series of Written in Blood. Along the way, I've travelled the length of the country, met up with some of the biggest names in crime writing, and examined cases I thought I knew, and some cases I'd never heard of before. And I've been both saddened by the horrific nature of all the crimes featured, and also heartened to a degree by the hard work and dedication of the various police officers that have resulted in every one of these crimes featured being solved and the perpetrators being brought to justice. And it seems that a lot of you have felt the same um, because I've had lots of messages saying uh, similar things. Also, um, since the programmes began airing, uh, many of you have got in touch and one of the recurring questions I've had is from people investigating crimes that have affected them in one way or another. Uh, These might be crimes that happened against a loved one or even by a loved one. Uh, And what they all seem to want to know is how they can go about finding more information about their individual cases. So I thought uh, what I'd do is ask the production team, uh, who have uh, been behind this series, uh, to give me some of their tips on how they have researched the crimes we featured. So the way uh, they begin researching their stories generally begins in the local area where the crime took place. Uh, And for this, local newspapers are actually an amazing resource, um, although they're sadly dying away in many parts of the country. However, um, considering most of the questions we're dealing with are historical crimes, there are always archives available somewhere. They may still exist in physical form or on microfiche or digitised in the local libraries. Um, So if you you contact the local libraries um, and look for the local newspaper archives, 
uh, that's a brilliant place to start and you can often get enormous amounts of information from uh, reports of the time uh, when the crimes were committed uh, or at the least it will set you off on the right foot now there's no guaranteeing that the newspaper will have given much information about a case but if the story happened in the area there's a fairly good chance that at the very least it will mention it if not addresses then certainly the names and pictures perhaps of the central characters involved perhaps that might be you know something that was said by the police straight after the crime uh, or in more complex cases uh, there will be a day-by-day reporting of new revelations details twists uh, arrests um, and again all the names of the people involved and it's those names that you're that you're collecting really in this first instance Uh, These news reports will also most likely contain any court hearings or trial information. Um, Now, finding this information can be painstaking. Going through old microfiche records and pulling the newspapers page by page um, past an antiquated monitor uh, is pretty much uh, hard on the eyes and the patients. But if you look hard and long enough, there is usually some key information just waiting to be read um, that most people will have forgotten. Um, and won't be readily available on the internet. Uh, Best of all, it will also, most of the time, give you the name of the journalist who covered the case. We've often tracked these people down for the programme and interviewed them with huge amount of success because they can often remember all kinds of things that never made it into the articles they wrote. And so they are a, a kind of living resource about particular crimes that they covered. So get the name of the journalist and add it to your list of personnel of all the other people involved and start to track them down which is you know relatively easy these days because most people are online they've got an email they've got a facebook account and just you know if you approach them and explain what you're doing it's the best way talking to people that's how most of the research of this program has been done is largely through talking to the people at the time who remembered the cases and were involved Now, some of the other messages we've received from viewers uh, have focused on more ambiguous cases, um, perhaps one where the exact incident or location wasn't known. Uh, Now, clearly, these are much harder to trace. You could be entering a kind of needle-in-a-haystacks type situation with the research. And there's also, unfortunately, no database of murder convictions or cases in the UK. So your best bet, uh, as we've done on a couple of these cases, is just to keep on digging. Uh, You can go to the courts uh, because they keep records. The police also keep records. And if you have a connection to the case, you should be able to petition them to allow you to look at the case files. In certain cases, if the case is ongoing, they might not let you look at them. But it's, you know, you don't know unless you ask. There's also solicitors who generally, you know, deal with local cases. They may have records that they may share with you again if you have a direct personal connection to uh, the case. And also another great resource is local history groups because these are people who often collect oral history of their local places and they know a lot of people and they've done a lot of digging and they know a lot of local resources that might not be immediately apparent um, if you just go in the library and ask. Um, There's lots of local history groups, lots of people are increasingly fascinated by tracing their own family trees um, and the research to trace a family tree follows the same route uh, often as a lot of um, criminal cases, Um, you know, looking at censuses, looking at newspapers. So if you contact a local history group for wherever your crime happened or where you lived, nine times out of ten you will find someone who can help you. So uh, 
that is my advice uh, that's how we've done it on the series it's a lot of work but if you really want to dig down and find the truth you will ultimately most of the time be rewarded for the effort you put in so good luck with your own investigations so that's it for this series of written in blood um, hopefully we'll be examining more cases in a future series but for now thanks for watching and also for listening to these accompanying podcasts you can still contact me on Twitter at Simon Toyne, all lowercase, all one word, using the hashtag written in blood so I know what it's about. Or find me on my Facebook author page, uh, which is easy to find because there's only one Simon Toyne author. Uh, and I always love hearing from you um, about the show, about questions you have, um, and I will always reply. And if you have enjoyed this podcast, also please leave a rating or a review on iTunes or Acast or wherever you get your podcasts from, uh, because it's always nice to see positive feedback. Uh, and if you don't like them and didn't like listening to them, well, you know, well, just try harder next time. Uh, but until then, thanks for listening. I'm Simon Toyne, and this has been the Written in Blood podcast. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Ruby Frankie was known by millions as a very tough mom. That's exactly the way she wanted it. The social media star amassed a huge following of supporters and detractors alike, preaching the values of strict discipline. But you'll learn in a new podcast available exclusively on Wondery Plus how the small empire built by this momfluencer crumbled the moment her 12-year-old son escaped their home and called 911. Wondery and Law and & Crime bring you the new podcast, The Rise and Fall of Ruby Frankie, which explores the allegations of starvation, torture, and emotional abuse leveled against Frankie and her business partner, Jody Hildebrandt. Learn about the family's path to stardom, the depravity investigators uncovered inside the home, and hear in-depth analysis of the ongoing criminal trial. Listen to the rise and fall of Ruby Frankie exclusively and ad-free on Wondery Plus. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business. Like that, let's put it online and see what happens stage. And the site is live. That we opened a store and need a fast checkout stage. Thanks, you're all set. That count it up and ship it around the globe stage. This one's going to Thailand. And that, wait, did we just hit a million orders stage? Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for your $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen. Listen. 